Good to see you guys here today. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Romans chapter 13. We'll be there in just a minute. If you do happen to uh, see my wife today, uh, wish her a happy birthday. Tomorrow is her birthday. Man, she has been a rock star for Foothills Church, and um, we wouldn't be where we're at if it wasn't for her. So uh, I owe a lot to her. The church, I know, appreciates her, and she turns 21 tomorrow. So encourage her. We're going to Cotton Eye Joe's. It's going to be fun. I'm just kidding, just kidding. Um, we're, we're in a sermon series that we're calling We the People. And we, we, we thought that as we come into this very stressful political season, it would be helpful for us to really look to the Word of God to begin to build a stronger, more robust uh, biblical worldview. And so that as we make decisions on who we're going to vote for, as we make decisions about how we engage the political process in America, we do so with a firm biblical foundation and, and not just, you know, the, the, the wave of popular opinion. Uh, and so uh, today we want to continue that journey. How do the people of God engage the politics of America? And as the presidential election continues to unfold, there are many issues uh, at stake here that we're, we're seeing, especially for Christians who are pro-life and Christians who uh, seek to support religious freedom. Uh, there is a far left agenda that seeks to expand abortion, that seeks to limit your free speech and your expression of religion. And you know, we see it when uh, President Trump is trying to currently fill the open seat for the Supreme Court for Amy Coney Barrett, uh, a woman of faith, a woman by all indications would make a great Supreme Court uh, justice. Uh, but she's being criticized in large part because of her faith uh, and how her faith might impact uh, decisions that she would make in a uh, judicial situation, a court case. And I think it's important for Christians on many levels, especially for us right now, because a lot of these cases are going to be decided by the Supreme Court this year. I don't know if you've researched much, but there are a lot of religious freedom type cases that the Supreme Court is actually going to rule on. One of the most notable cases is Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia. And uh, if you don't know about it, the decision... Uh, that the Supreme Court will decide is going to directly impact faith-based adoption and foster care agencies. One um, agency in particular is Bethany Christian Re uh, Services. Uh, at Bethany, they believe um, that marriage is reserved for one man and one woman. Their, their biblical conviction, their moral conviction is uh, one man, one woman in marriage. And so when a same-sex couple came wanting to adopt, uh, they wanted to practice their beliefs, Right. And so they denied, and uh, of course that couple then uh, sued, took them to court. They've been through several cases. Now it goes to the Supreme Court uh, for a decision to actually be made. And so the Supreme Court is going to decide if it's constitutional for Christians to practice their faith and follow their moral convictions. It's a big case. It's going to be interesting to see how the court is going to decide, but even more cases are going. There's a young man who was preaching the gospel on a uh, college campus that uh, has, 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 has his case is going all the way to the Supreme Court as well. A lot of different cases at this point, and, and uh, the, the decisions by the Supreme Court are going to dramatically impact uh, the future of our country for years to come. So uh, one question we have to ask is, should the government actually be able to force you and I as Christians to do things that directly go against our conscience, uh, that would directly go against the Word of God? Uh, should government be forcing us to do things that uh, clearly the Bible um, is not in support of? Would we dishonor God? And so I want to 
develop that worldview again today as we look to Romans 13. And, and really, I want to start with this question today. Uh, kind of go to a foundational question, which is, what is the, the biblical role of government? We're going to see today that government is actually God's idea. And uh, there are some good things to it. What do we do uh, when uh, maybe government is doing things that uh, go against or force us, want us to do something that is against God's word? But we want to start in chapter uh, 13 of Romans today. And we're going to look at several things uh, that actually apply to us. So if you've got your Bibles or if you want to look up here, here we go. Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So several things that we learn in these short few verses. One is that at the very beginning, we're told to be in subjection uh, or subject to uh, our government, which means that we should submit, we ought to obey, we ought not resist the government and the laws that uh, are provided and given to us as American citizens. So we are to subject ourselves to the government. A couple of things you might write down. Some of the things. First of all, God appoints government officials. So in verses 1 and 2, we're seeing here that uh, there is no government except the government that God actually establishes. And so he establishes the authorities. He puts them in those places. Um, and so we, we are to respect those authorities. We are to honor those authorities. And yes, unfortunately, we are also told to pay taxes when they tell us to pay taxes. And so that's another issue. Sorry to disappoint you. But that is actually in the Bible. Second thing that we learn from this passage is that government should restrain evil by threat of punishment. So essentially in verse 3, if you break the law, the government is there to punish you. Right? This is a good thing. You commit a crime and you're going to be held accountable. And so the government is there to punish the wrongdoer. Right? Number three, government should praise those who do good. So um, verses three and four, when you do good, the government gives its approval. So that word approval there in verses three and four uh, is the idea of praise. And so it can be translated as a reward. So uh, here the government should be promoting the common good of the nation. Uh, to those who do good. So, you know, the government might give you tax breaks if you're doing good in this area. The government uh, gives uh, tax-exempt status to churches uh, because the church does so much good in the community. Um, government uh, provides parks and national parks, um, provides good moral laws. Why? All to promote and to reward the good behavior of its citizens. Number four, we're learning that government officials actually serve God. So 
he says in verse 4 that government officials are servants of God. Uh, in verse 6, authorities are ministers of God. Now, listen, we are to think of government as uh, serving God when they punish uh, crime, when they reward those who are good in society, even if those officials do not realize or understand that God appointed them and that they are, in fact, serving God. We, as the people of God, look at that situation and look at government as a good and right thing. We're to think of government as serving God. We think of government as punishing evil. Uh, Verse 4, we should view this as a good thing. In fact, he says the government carries out God's wrath by not uh, and does not uh, bear the sword in vain. So essentially what that means is government functions as an avenger who carries out punishment against the wrongdoer. If you flip over to Romans 12, uh, scripture says that we are not to take um, uh, vengeance because vengeance belongs to God. So you don't have to worry about being a get backer. You don't have to get back at someone. God's going to take care of that situation. And here in verse uh, chapter 13, he's basically saying one of the ways that God does take uh, vengeance for us is in the form of government. So we're, we're seeing be subject, right? We're, we're seeing government punishes and rewards here along the same lines in first Peter chapter two, verse 13. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So again, we're commanded uh, to be in subjection to submit to government authorities. Uh, we're seeing government is established to actually punish evil, uh, crimes and wrongdoing and uh, praise uh, when when good things are done by the people. Right. So it goes on to talk about how the way in which we impact culture around us is by uh, silencing foolish people by actually doing good. And so this is our role. The concept then of government in general is a good thing. It is it is a God thing and it's a blessing to uh, citizens of the country. Government shouldn't make um, should make laws. And yes, uh, those laws are going to infringe upon certain freedoms that we have. So government creates speed limits on the highway. So uh, you're, you're not free to just drive as fast as you want to drive. That uh, uh, kind of limits our freedom, but it is there for the common good, right? Uh, you're not allowed to murder people. That is a crime. And so uh, that is a good law. Uh, stealing is a crime, right? And so government creates uh, these laws. Uh, and most everyone would agree that these are good Righteous, appropriate laws to protect life and promote the general welfare of uh, society. But what about when a government uh, forces you to do something evil? What about when uh, a government is evil? Uh, Several examples of of that throughout history. This is a great question. What would the people of God uh, do if the government was forcing us to do something evil or, uh, in fact, was just doing evil things? Would we go along with it? And you think of Nazi Germany, uh, Christians at that time, many of them, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of them, who was pushing back and, and fighting against Nazi Germany. Um, he was killed for that. Uh, we see uh, many, many, many other stories of Christians who would hide Jews and, and, and were trying to fight back against that time. And, and so that is a good thing. You, you, you are not bound to obey a government that would tell you to do something evil or force you to do something evil. 
Uh, you think of uh, communist China right now. It's illegal to own a Bible. Uh, if you lived uh, as a Christian in China today, would you uh, do what was illegal and try to find a Bible uh, and just keep it hidden so that you could, you know, disobey the government, but, but, but you long for the word of God? Well, I think that, that would be a good thing. And so there are times when uh, we would not uh, obey government because it was telling us and teaching us to do something that would be against God's word. We look to our own government. And uh, Hobby Lobby just went through this big ordeal over the last couple of years where um, the, the health care uh, industry was uh, through the government was essentially telling Hobby Lobby that you had to provide abortion uh, drugs to your employees. And they said, no way, we're not going to do that. Um, and so that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And thankfully, um, the Supreme Court ruled in their favor. My question is, why weren't there more, you know, um, people fighting that? And I'm grateful that Hobby Lobby went through that stress and all the money that it took to go through that process. But, but shouldn't there have been thousands of other businesses that were doing the same thing, overwhelming almost in a sense the court system with uh, thousands, if not millions of Christians standing up against the government uh, that would seek and try to uh, lead us to do something that we are 100% against? Like when you look at the word of God, we're going to see example after example of where God does not hold people responsible for obeying the government when it means disobeying a command of God. And so we, we, we have several examples of this. We, we see right after Jesus uh, is resurrected, he commands the disciples to go and to preach the gospel. And so as they start preaching the gospel, the government at that time uh, told the disciples that they had to stop. You're not allowed to preach about Jesus any longer. Stop it. You remember what they said. Uh, they were pretty clear. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard in Acts chapter 4 verse 20. Uh, we see in Acts chapter 5, they said we must obey God rather than men. And God used their obedience to change the culture that they lived in. We see um, in, in the book of Daniel, these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you remember the story. They were commanded to worship a golden statue. But they refused the government's uh, mandate upon them. And when they did refuse, the, the government threw them in a fiery furnace. But, but God saved them from the fiery furnace. And God used their obedience to change the culture that they lived in. In Exodus, Pharaoh commanded that all newborn Hebrew baby boys would be executed and killed by the midwives. The midwives in Exodus 1 refused and disobeyed the commanding uh, government of the time, and they hid the babies, and God commended them for that. We see Moses' mother disobeying that same law and saving her son, who then would grow up in Pharaoh's court. God used their obedience to change the culture that they lived in. You read the story of Esther, and she disobeyed the law and risked her very life to save her people. And God used her obedience to change the culture that she lived in. We see men like Daniel, who also disobeyed the law. He, he was told he was not allowed to pray to his God. He did anyway. And God used his obedience to change the culture that he lived in. Herod, the king of uh, the Jews at that time, uh, he told the wise men, when you find the, the, the Messiah, the king of the Jews, then I want you to tell me where he is, right? And an angel appeared to the three wise men and said, disobey the king. And so they disobeyed the king and they were commended for that. God used their obedience 
to change the culture they lived in. Time and time again, men and women in the scripture, they were bold, they were obedient, and they were willing to suffer the consequences of a corrupt government. And we, in 2020, as American citizens today, are going to have to decide if we are going to be bold, if we are going to have a voice, and are we going to be willing to suffer the consequences of standing for truth today. That is the question that we have to wrestle with. I love how Jesus helps us think through these issues. In Matthew 22, the Pharisees were trying to uh, really kind of uh, get him in a situation where he was going to have to say something to get himself in trouble. And, and so they, they asked Jesus, should we pay taxes? And uh, they thought, oh man, we, we've got him now because if he says no, then we can, we can, we can tell the authorities. And he says, yes, he's going to make all these other people angry. And so, so they ask him this question. And then in Matthew 22, verse 20, it says this. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this? He had picked up a coin and they said, Caesar's. Caesar's face was on the coin that he had. And then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. So Jesus is showing us that there are two different influences in the world. You have one influence, which is government, which is established by God. And then you have the religious life of God's people, right? And so like many things, Jesus is really changing the course of humanity with this concept and with this idea and with this, really this truth that we even live by uh, today. He's introducing a new order in which the things that are of God's are not to be under the control of Caesar, right? And so that's huge for us. The things that are of God should not be under the control of government. He's saying civil government should give people freedom regarding the practice of their faith and their religion. Government should not be choosing or telling you who you should worship or how you should worship. Government, Caesar, should not control such things. And the framers of the Constitution wanted to give citizens in America the freedom to practice whatever religion we chose. That's why the very first amendment actually speaks to this freedom of religion. It's the first one. Why? Why is it the first one? Because without this freedom, there is no liberty. Here's what the Constitution says. The First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment, right, a creation of religion, a state-run religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, the, the exercise of our faith, or abridging the freedom of speech. So we have a freedom of speech and a freedom to practice that religion. Or of the press, or the right of the people to peaceably to assemble. Peaceably, right? So in protest, we peaceably have the right to assemble, to protest, but when there are you know, looting and blowing up buildings and killing people, this is not protected in the Constitution and government should enforce law and order. And to the petition, the, to petition the government for a redress of grievances, right? So the first, it's the first one because the, the, the framers of our Constitution understood that if the government ha- is allowed to mandate what you believe, or what religion you practice, 
then they have the ability and the power to dictate what you read, what you watch, right? What, what you can say or not say, what you hear on the radio and on TV and on media, basically how you should, in fact, live your life. The founders realized that if God himself does not violate our religious freedom, then the government shouldn't violate that freedom uh, either. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus never forced people to believe in him. Right? In, in fact, genuine faith can never be forced. You can't force your child to love Jesus. You can't force your spouse to love Jesus. Like you never see in the scriptures God forcing someone to believe in him or, or Jesus forcing someone uh, to uh, believe in him. No, it must be genuine. It must uh, come from us. Like God, yes, gives us the ability to have that faith, but at the same time, we are held responsible for that. So as Christians, we're not trying to create a theocracy in America. That is not what we want at all. We would never demand that the government make Christianity the national religion. That's not what we want. We want everyone to have a freedom to choose what God they want to actually worship. We believe the power of the gospel is uh, the salvation that leads uh, to not only freedom from sin, but a home in heaven. And so we don't need politicians trying to coerce baptisms or you know, build a, a church. That is not what we want. The gospel is strong enough to fight for itself. And so all we need to do is share it. And the Holy Spirit does his work in the business of changing lives. And as Christians and, and as citizens in the U.S., we wholeheartedly believe that religious freedom should be applied to all religions. All Americans should have that freedom to worship the God of their choice. And the main reason the founding fathers wanted this is because they believe Jesus' words here. And they knew that it was uh, like, and they knew what it was like uh, to actually be a part of a country uh, that mandated religion, that mandated what church you went to and the taxes you had to pay, pay and what kind of Bible translation you had to read and, and the abuse of the Church of England. They grew up with it. They knew it. The original colonists were abandoning England and the Church of England to gain this religious freedom. In England, they didn't get to choose where they attended church. They didn't get to choose denominations. They were taxed. They were uh, all kinds of uh, infringements on their freedom. And, 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 and they wanted uh, all of this to end. They wanted to, to, to freely follow God and, and not have the state-run church. They know this is how you're going to act and what you're going to do and how you're going to do it and how much money you owe. It was a terrible thing. Wars and, and um, all kinds of um, you know, wars between Catholics and Protestants and uh, they, so many all across Europe and, and England. It was a terrible, terrible thing. So in the Constitution, they were saying, we do not want in America what we had in Great Britain. We don't want Caesar running the things of God. We will not all be Catholics. We won't all be Protestants. We won't all be Anglicans, right? Or any other single denomination. We do want God's principles, but we don't want one denomination running the nation or one religion running the nation. So, but does the First Amendment mean that government shouldn't be influenced by religious ideas? That's the question, right? Should the government be influenced by the morality of the, 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 the people of faith in a country? That's a great question, 
Because today we have organizations like the ACLU who would say, no, government should not be influenced or take part in anything or have anything to do with any religious belief. Keep your religion at home, stay quiet, keep quiet, and the government shouldn't be influenced at all by religious groups. So remove God from all public uh, settings, right? Uh, remove God from schools. These, these groups actually will argue in a court of law, they will actually use the First Amendment and the establishment of religion clause to argue that God should be removed. And so this is where we see the redefinition of what the original framers of the Constitution were actually meaning and teaching and desiring for our country. Uh, one example is uh, what was known as Proposition 8 in the state of California. You remember this not long ago? Uh, California in this amendment was basically saying that marriage uh, should be defined by one man and one woman. 52% of the state uh, voted for that amendment. But then as it went through the court system, the final court's decision was this, and I quote, Genuine religious beliefs, uh, the First Amendment in the Establishment Clause, says that a majority is not entitled to impose its religious beliefs on a minority. In other words, even though the majority of Californians voted to define marriage as one man and one woman, they were wrongly establishing a religion. But folks, marriage is not a religion. We get that. Your concept of marriage does not mean that you have created or established a religion. When you vote to define marriage a certain way, you are not establishing religion. The word religion means Christianity or Judaism or Islam. The, the, the set of faith-based principles that you actually uh, follow. Marriage is not a religion. And your view of marriage is not establishing any kind of marriage. These people, essentially, the courts, are trying to redefine what the word religion actually means. So I think Wayne Grudem rightly explains it well when he talks about the difference between the reasons for a law and the content of a law. And so we must distinguish the reason for the law from the content of the law. So the idea here, that there are religious reasons for many laws that we have, right? We have the religious reason of murder being wrong and not a good thing. And so that, that, that is a moral law. That is a good law. But because it comes from a religious reason does not mean that we are establishing a new religion based on that concept. Uh, most religions are going to say stealing is wrong. But laws against stealing don't establish a religion. All religions have laws against stealing and murder, and that is not creating or establishing a law. We following? The courts are making judgments based on reasons instead of content. If your reason for saying that same-sex marriage is, is not good, and, and that reason is because you're a Christian, well, that's not, that's not going to suffice, right? We're not going to look at the content of what it does to children and what it does in society and, 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 and what, what is best for the kid and, and what is best, you know, when we live out the, the principles of life and purpose and meaning. Like, like, that's not important. We just want to, what we see today is just this, this, let's just cut anyone out of the conversation 
that has a reason that is tied to a God. So they're basing judgments based on reasons instead of content. So think about it, though. Over the course of American history, the campaign to fight against slavery in England and America was led by Christians based on religious convictions. But laws abolishing slavery are not establishing a religion. The Republican Party was created because the Democratic Party didn't want to abolish slavery. Their religious beliefs led them to create this party. They were not establishing a new religion. The campaign to end racial discrimination and and segregation in America was led by a Baptist preacher named Martin Luther King Jr. And he preached and led this cause by preaching the word of God. But those laws against discrimination and segregation do not establish a religion. So if organizations like the ACLU win these legal cases based on this ridiculous logic that the citizens that vote on issues based upon a religious value, if if, if they're willing to to say, look, if you're going to do that, then all of us need to be worried. Because our free exercise of religion is completely gone. And nobody cares about your vote. The Supreme Court can rule that your reason for a law is not valid. And if so, then every person of faith in America will be void. They will not be counted. You will not get a vote. The Constitution says we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. And endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so the most basic human right is given by God according to our own constitution. So therefore, using a religious reason to support one of these secular uh, laws is not establishing a religion. Right? Using a religious reason to support a secular law is not establishing religion, but I would say it's a great way to establish a country. (laughs) And so there's a difference between reason and content. We want to understand that, but the argument is going to move forward with this idea and concept of a separation between church and state, right? You're going to hear this in school. If you're in college, you're going to hear this as an argument. There's separation of church and state, so you just can't bring your religious reasons into this conversation, which is entirely false. Did you know that the concept of separation in church and state are nowhere in the First Amendment? In fact, they are nowhere in any of the founding documents of our country. So where did it come from? Well, quick history lesson here. In 1801, the... Um, Danbury Baptist Association of Danbury, Connecticut. They, they heard some rumors that the Congregationalists, that was a denomination, they were going to be made the state-run denomination. They were upset, they were mad, they didn't want this to happen, so they wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson replies to them on January 1st, 1802, and he wrote to the Danbury Baptist Association, the First Amendment, and I quote, has erected a wall of separation between church and state. And he went on to explain that the meaning of this was to keep the government out of the affairs of the church. The point was not to keep the church out of the affairs or influence the government. And that's 
the most basic fundamental error of the separation of church and state concept. It's not to keep church out of government. It was to protect the church from government rule. So the only freedom of religion that was intended was freedom from government sponsorship. So the idea of removing religious influence from our government is a complete falsehood. It's a lie. The framers never intended that. And it should be rejected by any follower of Jesus. In a free society, which is where we live, right? It's a free country with free speech and the free practice of religion. You and I should, without fear, no matter where we're at, on a college campus, in a public setting, uh, in a government building, be able to talk about freely what we believe and then provide evidence for that belief. And then as we share this for the common good, then we try to persuade people that this is a right and good and moral way to live. And then the people vote and we should have dialogue and we should be able to have that conversation. But what they are trying and what the left really wants to do in our country is silence you. Don't speak. And so let me put fear in your heart and fear in your mind that you're going to get canceled. You're going to get made fun of. You might get fired. You're going to lose money. And guess what? By and large, the Christian church in America is eating it. And not only eating it, they are living it. And what do we do? We don't say a word. Why? We are scared to death. Folks, we cannot be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. We cannot remain silent. We cannot be ashamed of our biblical convictions. And you shouldn't be intimidated by those who want to ridicule or silence your voice. At some point, the Christian community is going to have to push pause on little league games and realize that this country is beginning to slip away from us. At some point, Christian. Christians in this community and around the country are going to have to vocalize our voice. We're going to have to step out and, 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 and be present in the conversation and be physically present in marches or in, in, in physical protests where we are doing it peaceably, but we are sharing our opinion and we are standing upon the word of God instead of just hiding out and let everybody else do all the work. At some point, we've got to be ready to experience the consequences and we have to be ready to embrace the suffering, that obedience to God in order to change the culture we live in might bring. Verbalizing or talking about our beliefs doesn't mean that you know, we're forcing people to accept these viewpoints. It doesn't mean that we're doing it in a way that condemns people or, or is you know, ugly towards people or uh, condescending towards people. No, we, we do this in a way that is, is um, you know, healthy and good. We don't do this in a condescending way, but, but that doesn't mean speaking truth isn't potentially going to offend someone. Because a lot of times it will. Here's where we come full circle, though, when we go back to Romans 13. The role of the government is to punish evil and commend good. So what is good? What is evil? Who gets to decide? Does the president get to decide? Does the Supreme Court get to decide? Do you get to decide? Is what was evil in 1920 still evil in 2020? Is what is good and right and moral in 1920 still 
good and moral and right in the year 2020? The way that we answer these questions reveals our view of God. Abraham Lincoln once said to, a, to a, uh, an audience, if, if I were to tell you um, or I were to ask you how many legs a dog has, if you count the tail uh, as a leg, how many legs would that dog have? And the congregation said, five. And he said, nope. Just because you call a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. And that's what we see in our culture, right? That was his point. That today people are, are saying that something is something that is really not. That we can essentially say what is true for me. And you can say what is true for you. And, 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 and you just live by your truth and I'll live by my truth. But when you read the word of God, there is no such truth that morphs and grows and, 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 and just kind of like a Rubik's Cube just kind of changes every day. The scripture says that God is the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. The scripture clearly teaches us that there is something called absolute truth. It is found in the word of God. And as Christians... We have to rally around this concept and idea that what God says is true and right and moral and good is in fact true, right, moral and good. What he says is wrong and evil and bad and unhealthy, we must agree with. Sometimes we don't always understand it. Sometimes our personal emotions and relationships, you know, kind of tempt us to not believe in it. But if we do not rally around the truth of God's word in America today, liberty, freedom, everything that we have grown accustomed to in our country will begin to slip away from us because we don't even believe in it ourselves. Psalm 22 says, for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over all nations. He's in control over all nations today. Psalm 19 says the precepts of the Lord are right. In other words, his laws, his way of living is right. And it says rejoicing the heart. So when you follow the precepts, when you follow the the, the path of God, it leads to rejoicing. It leads to joy in your heart. Every Every single painful moment of your life most likely was because you didn't follow God's precepts. He says the commandment of the Lord is pure. Pure, it's holy. It says, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. In other words, what God says is right, you know, back in the days of Moses and back in the days of 1920 or, you know, 20, uh, uh, the early 2000s, whatever it is, like forever God's righteousness and holiness endures. The judgment of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Hebrews 4, 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see, God has determined what is good and what is evil And each of us will give an account to him. How you live matters. What you say or not say or what you stand up for or don't stand up for actually matters. If we are going to stand as Christians in the defense of religious liberty, we're going to have to agree that truth 
exists. And God has shown us what is true in his word. And I think the writers of the Constitution believed in this truth and they went so far as to say these truths are actually self-evident. We know them to be true. They were willing to sacrifice their jobs. They were willing to sacrifice their property, their reputation. They were willing to sacrifice their very life when they signed that declaration. I think Al Mohler rightly says it when he says, and I quote, If there is no true truth, there are certainly no self-evident truths. And the foundation of the American experiment in liberty, including religious liberty, disappears. No truth, no liberty. But as alarming as all of this will be to us, our hope is not in the First Amendment. Our hope is not in the Constitution. But it is grounded in the absolute truth and authority of the Word of God. And in it, we discover that people, that, that our hope, that our, our life is only found in Jesus. Purpose, meaning, joy. See, the hope of the world is that those who follow Jesus will stop living in fear. The hope of the world is, is that we would not live with the fear of being canceled or the fear of being ridiculed. And like women like Esther and Moses' mother and men like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and the twelve disciples, we've got to stand for truth. We can be a voice of hope in darkness. And we too can say, we must obey God rather than man. But the reality is, are we in fact going to say that? Or you just want to put your head down and ignore it? Do we want to put our heads down and just pretend like it'll all work out? No, I think we have to engage. And yes, vote. And yes, vote with a biblical worldview in mind. Seeking, as we said last week, the welfare of the city. And also today, I want to challenge everyone to join us for our 21 days of prayer that will start tomorrow. That together as a church, as a community of believers here, we will pray. And we will seek the face of God. And we may not have all the answers, but we are willing to create nonprofit organizations and lead them that would, that would impact religious freedom in a healthy way or that young people in the room would commit to become lawyers or go into you know, the political realm or, or they would do their part and, and, and we would all sense that, that God is calling and, and, and desiring us to do something and not just to let this amazing freedom that we have fall between our fingers. So I hope, I hope you'll join us at least in prayer this week and for the next 21 days that lead up to the election. And maybe for you today, you've never given your life to this man that we know as the truth. He's not a truth. He's not a way to truth. He is truth. And his name is Jesus. And he died on the cross so that your sins would be forgiven. He rose from the grave, proving that he was who he said he is. He was the son of God. He took your sin to the cross, paid for him. By faith in him, he will change your life. And maybe you're here today and you've never given your life to him. I would say that's step number one. That's the first thing you need to do today. So let me encourage you just to bow your heads today. I know sometimes as we talk about this, we sometimes feel helpless. We want to help. We don't know what to do. And I would just say today, 
let's walk away here committing to pray together as a church. And then secondly, that we would have the boldness to be willing to speak our mind and to speak biblical truth in love whenever the situation arises. We wouldn't back away from it. We wouldn't back away. Father, we're asking that you would give us the courage and the wisdom and the strength to be leaders in our community, to be leaders in this country. I even pray today, God, that you would <clears throat> you would call some men and women into full-time ministry today, that you would call some 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 young people to to seek out a political career or to, to, to maybe seek out a career in law. That, Lord, that they could be men and women of faith that help in this protection and fight for what this country really was created for. And that is to give an experience of free society to worship and to speak without harm or recourse. And so, God, give us the strength to lead in those ways. God, give us the voice in those conversations that we have from week to week and, and help us, Lord, if it means being canceled or if it means being heard or if it means suffering in some way, God, that you'll give us faith to endure that. And that these people in the Bible are not just given to us as good stories to tell our kids, but they're there to inspire us to be men and women of faith like them. So, Lord, we ask for that today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Foothill Church. If you made a decision to follow Christ while listening today, or if you have some more questions about what that looks like, then let us know. You can text SC Decision to 97000, or you can head over to foothillchurch.com slash decision. We hope you have a great week.